Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Genesis 25, 19-34 This is the account of Abraham's son, Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel the Aramean from Paddan Aram, and sister of Laban the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife, Rebekah, became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her, and she said, Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment, so they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out, with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was sixty years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. The boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country while Jacob was a quiet man staying among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country, famished. He said to Jacob, Quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That is why he was also called Edom. Jacob replied, First, sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. Well, a very good evening to you all. Let's pray as we begin to hear um, God continue to speak to us in his word. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you that your word brings life. And I do pray tonight that each and every one of us, it would pierce deep into our hearts. It would give hope to our souls, to every part of our being, that you would deeply encourage us in who your son is and that we would love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I I read a sobering stat um, this week in a recent newspaper article, The Guardian. It was reporting on a recent survey that was carried out by St. Mary's University in Twickenham. It was talking about church decline. It said this, in the UK, and these are The Guardian's words rather than my own, For every person brought up in a non-religious household who becomes a churchgoer, 26 people raised as Christians now identify as non-believers. It's a sobering stat, isn't it? Church members now certainly can't be accused of 
doing it because it's fashionable. We know that. What of our vegan Instagram live streaming millennials and young people? Well, FOMO, that's fear of missing out if you didn't know that, FOMO cannot be applied to church involvement. 70% of 16 to 29-year-olds identify as having no religion at all. And in fact, the number of young Muslims is soon to overtake the number of young Christians in this country. Now, I know you know this, you feel this daily in your places of work, school, university, amongst friends and family. And maybe being in the minority isn't what bothers you so much as the idea of your own fragility and uncertainty. You maybe feel tonight you're right on the edge. Family life is just about to tip you over. Or you're a Christian here tonight and you feel like your sin is starting to crush down on top of you and you're losing the heart to fight it. Well, our passage this evening has much to say to struggling people who are up against it, whatever way that looks to be up against it. Well, it says a lot to struggling people up against it. The original Israelite readers of Genesis, which we've got here, were a people used to being up against it. They're used to being up against strong tides of hatred against them, while at the same time facing deep, deep conflicts within them, doubt, selfish desire, a want to control their own lives. That's what they were going through, just like us today. And over this term, we've been looking at the faithfulness of a God who has a perfect record for being there for his people. We haven't come across an instance yet where he hasn't been there for his people. Abraham, Isaac, their faith tested, yes, but no record of God coming up short. And now tonight, we're moving out of this Abraham narrative and with the promise of blessing ringing in, your, in our ears All the drama and hard stuff is behind now. It's okay. It's all okay now. We can enjoy reading how everything goes well hereafter. So Isaac and Rebecca churn out strong, intelligent, sociable, sporty, beautiful children who are a delight to their parents. They quickly breed into a super race and through innovation, creativity, engineering, and medical advancement, they produce an indestructible people who are happy all day long. Well, no, God knows us too well. For that, he knows what we need. And it's trial before triumph. He knows we are not naturally capable of trusting him. So we need to be shown. And we need to be reminded. And we need to be reminded. And we need to be shown. It is he who looks after us. It is he we need to look after us. And just like I have to remind my seven-year-old, my five-year-old, and my four-year-old, when they want to stay in, when we're trying to drag them out, and they're determined they're going to stay in and look after themselves, I say to them, Noah, George, Karis, there is nothing I'd like more than to leave you here to look after yourselves. (laughs) But you are not capable. You're not capable of looking after yourselves properly. And tonight, we are not capable of looking after ourselves properly. We need God And we need his provision for us. So we've got here in the passage, verse 21. We've seen a a little bit of this already. Rebecca, Rebecca is barren. Another significant fallen tree on the path. 
It was so clear, it seemed, a few weeks ago when we looked at this in chapter 24. Abraham's servant did such a good job. Right clan, circumstances of meeting, so precise. It just couldn't have been a coincidence. Could it? Would you have started to doubt here? Well, what, would, what was Isaac's response? Well, we've read it. We know here his father decided to take matters into his own hands when put in the same situation. Abraham took his wife's servant, Hagar, and we know from reading through the narrative there is much pain for all concerned in that decision. Well, the text here tells us Isaac does good. Verse 20, 21, have a look. What does he do? He prays. Isaac prays, and the Lord graciously answers him, and Rebekah becomes pregnant. And so from a problem of not being pregnant, then we move swiftly into the problem of being pregnant, and it's a very uncomfortable pregnancy for Rebekah. It says the babies jostled each other within her. Now, that isn't a mild problem, okay? Jostling to us might sound polite, I think, but it isn't a mild problem here that's solved with a cup of tea and a lie down. This is war here, okay? This is war in a very small battleground. So Rebecca despairs as these babies literally, they smash against, they crush one another. That's what's going on in this womb. I, I preached this passage actually a, f- a few years ago and there was a lady in the congregation who I think I'd just found out that day um, that she was expecting twins. She was sitting towards the front and as I read um, this out, she was sitting there. I, I still remember her face looking in horror at what twins do inside. The idea of her baby smashing uh, each other. Well, let me underline in case any of you are expecting twins and tonight this isn't a normal situation. And like Isaac, well, Rebecca too does the right thing in response to her pain. Verse 22, she too turns to the Lord. And the response given here is an important one. And it sets, actually, it sets the context for what lies ahead. And we'll be exploring this over the next few weeks. Verse 23, the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, And two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. You see, Rebecca isn't just having two troublesome twins here who just won't get on with each other. We're actually looking here at the two fathers of enemy nations. And these nations would be at war with each other for the thousand plus years ahead. Jacob the father of the Israelites, and Esau, the father of the Edomites. Now, Edom would later be a nation who hated Israel. After after, um, the Israelites flee Egypt in Exodus, well, it's Edom who rejects Israel's safe passage through their land. It was Edom that sided with the Babylonians as they conquered Judah. It says it in Psalm 1377, remember O Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. And so we have here the origins of their enmity between one another. Now, Genesis has already provided two instances of fraternal rivalry. So we've had Cain and Abel right in the beginning. And we have had Ishmael and Isaac 
And there are a couple of exceptions um, in the ancient Near East, but generally in ancient Near Eastern culture, it was determined that the eldest son would be the one who gained favor and inheritance. But it's very clear here, God does not bow to human ways. Whatever the culture, he doesn't bow to it. He alone decides on the best way to carry out his plan. So in verse 23, he tells us what to expect. God has decided the older will serve the younger. And that should be a deep encouragement to us because nothing is left to chance. God is in control of his promises. It's him that looks after them coming to fruition. And he indeed is the only guarantee. So the boys, the boys are at war. And this whole episode here, it's brutal. Verses 24 to 26 are incredible. So can you imagine, if you've, if you've had a child and been in the hospital, you, you get this bounty person that comes along. Um, after, pretty much straight after the pregnancy in the hospital, you get this person coming along with their, their nice newborn pack and offering to take a picture of you. And most moms, I think, generally just want them to tell them to, to go away. But they come, come, come on and they take a photo. Well, can you imagine? Here, camera at the ready, out comes this hairy, red, animal-like little creature. And right behind him, if that wasn't shocking enough, right hand attached to heel, concerned that the birthing procedure might interrupt a good fight, out comes the brother. One name according to appearance, and the other, the other according to action. So we have Esau the hairy, and Jacob the heel grabber. And in verses 27 and 28, well, the boys, it's here in front of you, the boys grew up very differently. So Esau, in line with the more animal-like ways he is born with, he's an outdoors type, he's ruddy, he's wild. Jacob, well, he's more content at staying home around the family. And this is actually an important detail at this point. This idea of Jacob being quiet, it it doesn't present him just as as a mummy's boy. No, he's got this, actually, this air of virtue about it. This Hebrew word tam, it's the same word used to describe both Noah and Abraham, and it comments on their integrity. At the time, there's, now there's clearly, we know this just from reading this passage, there's clearly much character formation to take place in Jacob. There's work to be done, but it's very clear here, he is a child of the promise, and he is the one that God is going to work through. One is loved by dad. There's lots of details I could mention here. One is loved by dad, one by mom. Again, despite the complications of a messy, messy family life, well, the Lord still works. So with the contrasting character descriptions and the Lord's declaration, the older will serve the younger, well, the stage is set for the next episode. And it's all about from verses 29 to 34. It's all about birthright. Verse 31, sell me your birthright. Verse 32, what good is the birthright to me? Verse 33, selling his birthright. Verse 34, Esau despised his birthright. So Esau, he comes in from hunting and he's absolutely ravished. His animalistic desires, they're starting to take control. Here, this language, it's coarse. So it's more of the idea of gulping down Food. So the verb in verse 30 has been used, to, used by others to describe the cramming of food down the throat of an animal. That's more what's going on here. So the picture is a tired, sweaty, hairy, animal-like man 
stomping in and grunting primitively. So it goes red, red. It's more like a red, red. I'll not do that again, don't worry, but it's more it's primitive. And Jacob, the great heel grabber, well, he can't believe his luck. He knows exactly what he wants, and he goes after it. What is he after? Well, he's after the birthright. We're not told exactly what birthright meant to Jacob or Esau. In Deuteronomy 21, 17 and 1 Chronicles 5, we know there are significant material and spiritual blessings from the birthright. So a double portion of the property and spiritual leadership of the family. It was worth wanting. Now, even if Jacob's method of acquiring it, it is highly questionable to say the least here. It is worth wanting this birthright. It's significant. And here's the thing. Esau, give it up for a bowl of stew. So his desires here completely get the better of him. First, verse 30, he's famished. How many here have had to say to to a melodramatic child, they're not starving, they are hungry? How many of you have had to say that to your housemate? You're not starving, you're hungry. Well, here we have someone that's famished. And then from famished, Esau's constitution is clearly collapsing before our eyes. By the second, as one sentence later, verse 32, he goes from famished to he's about to die. There is much at stake here, and we mustn't miss this lesson to us either. We must not trade away the blessings that God promises to us. We must not. Do not give up the treasure you have set in front of you, the promises that we hear here every week. Do not give them up for the equivalent of some bread and lentil stew. This is not easy. I know it from plenty of personal experience. Our desires can be cripplingly powerful at times. And if fighting sinful desire wasn't hard enough on its own, we're surrounded by voices telling us we don't need to fight them. It is your human right to live out your heart's desires. Be true to yourself. That's what we hear. Well, Esau, he did just that. And he lost so much. He is willing to forfeit his whole future to satisfy this momentary craving. And to be clear here, there is nothing wrong with Esau eating because he's hungry. That's a very natural uh, feeling to have when you do eat. You're hungry, you need to eat. The issue here is the value he puts in the meal. His desires rule him. We're surrounded by good things, which in and of themselves are gifts from God. He, give, he reigns down good things for us, food, sex, relationships, leisure, rest, play, all good things that he wants us to enjoy. But when we receive God's good gifts and we look to have satisfaction in them rather than God, the good giver, well, that's when our animalistic pangs of desire are revealed to be close at hand. And we must all be very aware of them. We become ravenous for intimacy that no relationship will provide. 
and we wonder why they keep disappointing. We're starving for pleasure, desperate to escape. Could sex be the answer to that? Well, many have to learn the hard way that it will only fail us. We're famished for purpose, for recognition, for identity. And it could perhaps take 40 years and a retirement party to tell us that we've wasted our time looking for it at work. The author of the New Testament book of Hebrews in chapter 12, well, he uses the example of Esau to charge the church, don't sell out what God offers for the taste of the world. He's saying this very thing. They are an inferior substitute. You see, it is God alone who offers us life in its full, not just a little bit of it. He offers it in full for all eternity. We've sung those words tonight. The promise is completely enjoyment. There's no negatives in it. Complete enjoyment of him. Enjoyment of his creation. Complete relationships. Appreciation of all the good things he gives. And we don't need to worry that it's going to end. It's for eternity. He gives us these things. But did you know what Esau does after he eats the stew? Have a look down. Towards the end, he ate and he drank. And what did he do after he ate and drank? He ate, he drank. And then he got up and he left. You can almost feel the chilling silence following that sentence. You see, he spends minutes, minutes gulping to quench his hunger. And then he gets up without a word. He leaves. And everything he had a right to is gone. Gone in a moment. He ate and drank. And then he got up and left. And you see, as good as self-gratification and instant pleasure may seem at the time, well, it is fleeting and it will not satisfy you. But even more significantly, you will be giving up knowing a God who knows and loves you intimately. He knows you will be at your best and your happiest and your most satisfied when you know him. Not in its entirety now, we know that, but soon, Isaiah 33, your eyes will see the king in his beauty. That's what he promises for all eternity. And as we close, some of you may be thinking at this point, I want to trust in God's promises, but like Esau's hunger, my desires often feel like they're going to completely overwhelm me and I just don't know what to do about it. Well, let me again refer you to what's happening here in verse 23 to encourage you. One people will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger. What did we say about that? God is in control of all circumstances and he has already given us the answer to overwhelming sin. He has already given us the answer to your overwhelming sin. God promises Abraham, Genesis 17, I will establish my covenant. This is the covenant we looked, we've looked at each week, really. We've referred back to this, 17 verse 7. I will establish my covenant 
as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the promise is sure because when you go right forward into the Gospels, Matthew chapter one, the line goes right to there. We have Abraham, we have Isaac, we have Jacob, Jacob, the father of Joseph, goes right to Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus who is called the Messiah. Starts with Abraham and it goes right through to the Messiah. Now, how is God's promise sure as we read this? Well, Matthew 1, 21, it's Mary will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save people from their sins. You see, the only way a Christian can defeat sin is because it has already been defeated on the cross. And can I say, there is no more encouraging word for you to hear tonight if you feel overwhelmed by your sin. Sin has been defeated on the cross. The war has been won. And when you do feel defeated, you must look not to yourself, but to the finished work of Christ and be reminded he has great victory. And just as Abraham, as Isaac, and as we'll see over the next few weeks, Jacob's faith, their faith was in God's victory that would come. He kept showing them he's a God worth trusting. He has victory. And Christ's victory is our victory too. Now that doesn't make it easy to fight sin, but it does make it possible because Jesus lives. And faith in Christ's completed work on our behalf, well, that's what makes it possible for us to change. As we close, I'd just like to read a quote from an old Puritan minister, John Owen. He penned it like this. Let faith look on Christ in the gospel as he has set forth dying and crucified for us. Look on him under the weight of our sins, praying, bleeding, dying. Bring him in that condition into your heart by faith. Apply his blood so shed to your corruptions. Do this daily. See, the work of Christ is what we rely on to fight sin. And that's why we turn to him alone. And we stand against anything that will distract us from him. So can I encourage you tonight? Don't despise what Christ has done on the cross. Don't try and replace it. There's nothing worth it. It was gracious and kind and mercy-filled and excruciatingly painful and undeserved and infinitely loving of him. And he did it so you could share eternal life with the Father. And tomorrow, as we go about our ways, well, you will find nothing that comes close to how much he loves you. Let's pray together. Father, we come and we bow down before you now. We acknowledge you as Lord, 
and we praise you that you have rained goodness and blessing on us. We are sorry, Lord, for the times when we sin, when we love the things that you have given us more than we love you, the creator. But we thank you so very, very much for Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And I pray for anybody here tonight that's feeling overwhelmed by sin, feeling overwhelmed by family affairs for whatever's going on that's they're struggling with in their life, I do pray that they would know deep in their hearts that Jesus Christ is Lord and the battle has been won and we have an eternity joyous in you to look forward to and we thank you that we can know you now and the more that we listen to your word and your Holy Spirit is working in us, we thank you so much that you give us a great and deep satisfaction and joy now. And we look to the time when we'll have that in its full and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.